Hello, llamas and gentlemen. Welcome to a very special Podcastle presentation. I'm your host, as usual, Dave Thompson. Generally speaking, we at Podcastle do our best to bring you the best fantasy fiction week after week. Something we've never done before is bring you the best non-fiction about fantasy fiction. Well, that's all going to change this week with a special essay we have by Cameron Hurley author of God's War and the upcoming Mirror Empire book. It's called We Have Always Fought, Challenging the Women, Cattle, and Slave Narrative. Cameron Hurley wrote this piece originally for Aidan Mower's blog, A Dribble of Ink, where it received literally hundreds of comments. I read it there when it first came out. I love that blog, and it stayed with me for a long time afterward. It's been reprinted in a few different places, and went on to receive a Hugo nomination. When that happened, Anna Ann Leckie and I talked about bringing it to a whole different audience here at Podcastle. I don't know how often we're going to do this. I don't even know if we're going to do it again. But this particular essay really spoke to us. We hope it challenges you. We hope it inspires you. Most of all, we hope it makes you think. So, without further ado, we present... Cameron Hurley, and we have always fought. We have always fought. Challenging the Women, Cattle, and Slaves Narrative by Cameron Hurley. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about llamas. Yes, llamas. And it's going to be like every other story you've ever heard about llamas. I'm going to tell you how they're covered in fine scales how they eat their young if not raised properly, and how at the end of their lives they hurl themselves, lemming-like, over cliffs to drown in the surging sea. They are, at heart, sea creatures, birthed from the sea, married to it like the fishing people who make their livelihood there. Every story you hear about llamas is of course the same. You see it in books, after all. The poor doomed baby llama getting chopped up by its intemperate parent, hmm? On television, the massive tide of scaly llamas falling in a great, majestic herd into the sea. And of course, of course you've seen it in the movies. I mean, you guess how the badass llamas smoking their cigars and painting their scales in jungle camouflage. Because you've seen this story so many times, because you already know the nature and history of llamas, it sometimes shocks you, I bet, to see a llama outside of these spaces, because, you know, the llamas that you see don't generally, uh, don't generally have scales. So you doubt what you see, and you joke with your friends about, <laughs> those scaly llamas, am I right? And they laugh, and they're like, yeah, llamas sure are scaly. And you guys forget about your actual experience. What you remember is the llama you saw who had mange, 
which looked sort of scaly, I mean, after a while. And, and, and there was that one llama who was sort of aggressive toward a baby llama, like maybe it was going to eat it. So you forgot the llamas that didn't fit this narrative that you saw in all the films, the books, the TV, all those llamas that you heard about in the stories. And instead, you remember the llamas that actually exhibited the behavior that the stories talk about. And, and suddenly, by remembering that, so all the llamas that you remember now fit the narrative that you see and you hear every day from those people around you. I mean, you make jokes about it with your friends. And, and you feel awesome. You feel like you've won something because, wow, I'm not crazy. And you think like everybody else now. And then... There came a day when you started writing about your own llamas. You, too, became a storyteller. And unsurprisingly, you didn't choose to write about the soft, downy, non-cannibalistic llamas you actually met, because you knew that no one would find those realistic. So instead, you plucked out the llamas from the other stories, you created cannibal llamas with a death wish, their scales all matted in paint. See, it's easier to tell the same stories everyone else does. There's no particular shame in it. It's just that it's lazy, which is about the worst possible thing a writer can be. Oh, oh, and of course, it's, it's not true. As somebody with, let's say, more than a passing knowledge of history, you know, like all the stuff that came before me, I'm really passionately interested in truth. Truth is something that happens whether we see it or not, or believe it or not, or write about it or not. Truth just is. I mean, we can call it something else or pretend it didn't happen, but its repercussions live with us, whether we choose to remember and acknowledge that truth or not. So when I sat down with one of my senior professors in Durban, South Africa, to talk about my master's thesis, he asked me you know, right away why I wanted to write about women resistance fighters. And I got all excited. I'm like, oh, because... Women made up 20% of the African National Congress's militant wing. 20%. I mean, when I found that out, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, women have never really been part of a fighting force. And he interrupted me. And he said, women have always fought. And I was like, what? Women have always fought, he said. Shaka Zulu had an all-female force of fighters, Women have been part of every resistance movement. Women dressed up as men and went to war. They went to sea. They participated actively in combat for as, for as long as there have been people. And, you know, I had no idea how to respond to that. I'd been nurtured in the U.S. school system on a steady diet of this great men theory of history. And, you know, oh, history is full of great men. I had to take separate women's history courses just to learn, like, what all the women were doing while these men were killing each other. And, you know, it turned out that the deeper I went in my research, the more I realized, like, 
women were governing countries and figuring out pretty effective methods of birth control that had these amazing ramifications on the makeup of like Greece and Rome. See, half the world is full of women. But it's rare to hear a narrative that doesn't speak of women as the people who have things done to them, not the people who do things. More often, you know, women are talked about as a man's daughter, a man's wife. I just watched this uh, reality TV show about an Alaskan bush pilot where all the pilots, like in this whole team, they all get their little intros about their families and their passions. And there's one female pilot, and she's given this one line, and it's as, you know, pilot so-and-so's girlfriend. And it wasn't until these two broke up in season two that she actually got to have her own intro. And in fact, you find out that she's been in Alaska four times longer than this guy. And she hunts and fishes and climbs ice walls in addition to being like this amazing bush pilot. But see, the narrative was cannibalistic llama. And our eyes kind of glazed over and we stopped seeing her as anything else. Language is a powerful thing, and it changes the way we view ourselves and other people in uh, delightful and and horrifying ways. Anyone with any uh, knowledge of the military or who pays attention to how the media talks about war has likely gone on to this. We don't kill people. We kill targets or japs or gooks. Or ragheads. We don't kill 15 year old boys. We kill enemy combatants. And yes, for those who are not aware, every boy 15 and over killed in drone strikes is automatically listed as an enemy combatant now. They are not a boy, they are not a child. And when we talk about people, we don't really mean men and women. We mean people and female people. We talk about American novelists and American women novelists. We talk about teenage coders and lady teenage coders. And when we talk about war, we talk about soldiers and female soldiers. Now, because this is the way we talk about war, when we talk about history and we use this word, soldiers, it immediately erases any women doing any fighting. So this is why it really comes as no surprise that the folks excavating Viking graves, you know, they didn't think, oh, I should check to see if these graves that I dig up are, you know, male or female. Obviously, these graves have swords in them. Swords are for soldiers. Soldiers are men. It was years, in fact, before they thought to even check the actual bones of the skeletons instead of just saying, oh, sword means dude, and they realized their mistake. Because women fought too. In fact, women did all sorts of things we think they didn't do. In the Middle Ages, they were doctors and sheriffs. In Greece, they were 
Oh, you know, sought it. Listen, Foz Meadows, amazing writer, does a better job with all the little linky links for those who desire proof. Just Google it. Let's put it this way. If you think there's a thing, anything, women didn't do in the past, you're wrong. Women, now and then, even made a habit of being standing up. They wore dildos. So even, you know, all you funny ha-ha folks who immediately are like raising your hands going, oh, it's impossible, women didn't do X, ha-ha-ha. Well, they did it. Except maybe impregnate other women. But even then, you know, of course, there's intersex folks categorized as women who did just that. But none of those things fit our Lama narrative. What we want to talk about are women in one capacity. Their capacity as a wife, as a mother, as a sister, as a daughter, to a man. I see this in fiction all the time. I see it in books and TV. I hear it in the way that people talk. All those cannibal llamas. And you know, it makes it really hard for me to write about llamas who aren't cannibals. James Tiptree Jr., also known as Alice Sheldon, has a very interesting story called The Women Men Don't See. I read it when I was 20, and, you know, I admit I had a really difficult time understanding what all the fuss was about. I mean, this was the story, but there was no story. We're stuck for the full narrative inside the head of a man who does very little, who's traveling with a woman and her daughter and does nothing. Like the man, though, we as readers don't actually see the woman and the girl. We don't realize that they are, in fact, the heroes of the story until it's all over. This was the man's story, after all. We knew how to read this story. That was his narrative. It's his story we were a part of. They were just passing objects, some NPCs in his limited landscape. We didn't see them. When I was 16, I wrote an essay about why women should remain barred from combat in the U.S. And I found it recently while going through some old papers. My argument for why women shouldn't be in combat was because, well, war was terrible and families are really important. And with all these men dying in war, why would we want women to die too? That, my friends, was my entire argument. Women shouldn't go to war because, like men do now, they would die there. And you know what? I got an A. I often tell people that I'm the biggest self-aware misogynist that I know. Why is that? Well, I was writing this scene the other night between this woman general and the man she helped put on the throne. And so I started writing in some romantic tension and realized how lazy that was. I mean, there are other kinds of tension, right? We need to put in tension, but there are other kinds. So then I made a passing reference to sexual slavery, which I had to cut. I nearly then had him use a gendered slur against her, and I growled at the screen. Okay, so let's say he wants to help her save her child. 
No. Her brother. Okay. She was going to betray him. Okay. He had some wives who died. Uh, no women in refrigerators. Okay. Close advisors? Friends? Maybe somebody just left him? See, even writing about societies where there's very little sexual violence or no sexual violence against women, I find myself writing in the same tired tropes and motivations. Well, okay, like, this guy is bad, and I need to have something traumatic happen to this heroine, so I'll have him rape her. That was an actual thing I did in the first draft of my first book, God's War which features a violent society where women outnumber men 25 to 1. Because, of course, that was the narrative. That's, that's what you do. I actually watched a TV show recently that was supposedly about this traumatic experience a young girl went through, but was, in fact, simply, like, tossed in so that the two male characters in the show could fight over it and argue about which one of them was at fault because of what happened to her. That right there was probably the most flagrant erasure of a female character and her experiences that I'd seen in quite a while. She is literally in the room with them while they fight about it, revealing all these character things about them uh, and about, you know, while she's kind of like sitting there in the background, just fading away. And we forget what the story is about. We erase women in our stories who in our own lives are powerful, forthright, intelligent, terrifying people. Women stab and maim and kill and lead and manage and own and run. We know that. We experience it every day. We see it. But this is our narrative. Two men fighting loudly in a room and a woman snuffling in a corner. What is realism? What is truth? People tell me that the truth is what they've actually experienced or what they remember they've experienced. But the trouble is, it's often hard to sort out what we actually experienced from what we're told we experienced, or what we should have experienced. I mean, we're social creatures, and fallible. In disaster situations, the average person will ask for about four other opinions before forming their own and taking action. Now, you can train people to respond quickly in these types of situations through vigorous training, such as in the military, but for the most part, about 70% of human beings like to just go along with their everyday routine. We like our narrative. It takes overwhelming evidence, and more importantly, the words of many, many, many people around us for us to take action. You see this all the time in big cities in particular. It's why people can get into fistfights and assault others on busy sidewalks. It's why people are killed in broad daylight and homes are broken into, even in areas with lots of foot traffic. 
most people actually ignore things out of the ordinary. Or worse, they hope that someone else will just take care of it. I remember being on a train in Chicago with about a dozen other people. And on the other side of the car, this man suddenly like fell off his seat. He just toppled over into the aisle and he starts convulsing. And there were three people between me and him. But nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. And so I stood up. Sir, I said, and I started toward him. And that's when everyone started to move. And I, I called for somebody at the back to push the operator alert button to tell the train driver to call for an ambulance at the next stop. And after I moved, there were suddenly three or four people with me coming to the man's aid. But somebody had to move first. This other time, I stood uh, in a crowded standing room only train on another day, and I watched a young woman standing near the door. And she closes her eyes and she drops her papers and her binder onto the floor. And she's packed in tight, surrounded by these other people, and no one said anything. And her body starts to go limp. And finally, I'm like, are you okay? And I'm leaning toward her. And then other people are looking. And as she's sagging, and then the buzz starts among the people. And somebody calls up from the front of the car. Oh, I'm a doctor, you know. And somebody gives up their seat. And people are moving, moving, moving. Somebody needs to be the person who says something is wrong. We can't pretend we don't see it. Because people have been murdered and assaulted on street corners where hundreds of people milled around pretending everything was normal. But guess what? Pretending it's normal doesn't make it so. Somebody has to point it out. Somebody has to get folks to move. Somebody has to act. I shot my first gun at my boyfriend's house in high school. First it was a rifle and then a sawed-off shotgun. And I have since gotten to be pretty decent with a Glock. I'm still terrible with that rifle. Uh, but I have had the opportunity to shoot an AK-47, the gun of choice for revolutionary armies around the world, particularly in the 80s. Now, I knocked over my first 200-pound punching bag with my fist when I was 24. And you know what? That punch, it meant a lot more. Because anyone could shoot a gun. But I knew how to hit things properly in the face really hard. See, growing up, I learned that women fulfilled certain types of roles and did certain types of things. It wasn't that I didn't have great role models. The women in my life were hardworking matriarchs. But the stories I saw on TV and movies and even in many books said that they were anomalies. They were those furry, non-cannibalistic llamas. So rare. But the stories were all wrong. I spent two years in South Africa and another decade once I returned to the States, finding out all about the women who fought. 
Women fought in every revolutionary army, I found, and those armies were often composed of fighting forces that were 20 to 30 percent women. But when we say revolutionary army, what do we think of? What image does it conjure? Does, does this force in your mind include three women and seven men? Six women and 14 men? Women not only made bombs and guns in World War II, they picked up guns and drove tanks and flew airplanes. The Civil War, the Revolutionary War, point me to a war, and I can point you to an instance where a woman picked up a hat and a gun and went off to join it. And yes, Shaka Zulu employed female fighters as well. But when we say Shaka Zulu's fighters, what image do we conjure in our minds? Do we think of these women who fought? Or are they the ones we don't see? The ones who, if we included them in our stories, people would say weren't realistic. Ah, ah, yes, but of course, we do talk about the women who ran with Shaka Zulu. See, when I Google women who fought for Shaka Zulu, I learn all about his harem of 1,200 women. And his mother, of course. Oh, and this line was very popular. Women, cattle, and slaves, one breath. See, it's easy to think women never fought and never led when we are never seen. What does it matter if we tell the same old stories, if we share the same old lies, if women fight and women lead and women hold a path the sky? What do stories matter to the truth? We won't change the truth by writing people out of it. Will we? See, stories tell us who we are. They tell us what we're capable of. When we go out looking for stories, we are, I think, in many ways, going in search of ourselves, trying to find understanding of our lives and the people around us. Stories and language tell us what's important. So if women are bitches and cunts and whores, and the people we're killing are gooks and japs and ragheads, then they aren't really people, are they? And not being people makes them easier to erase, easier to kill, to disregard, to unsee. But the moment we reimagine the world as a buzzing hive of individuals with a variety of genders and complicated sexes and unique, passionate narratives that have yet to be told, it makes them harder to ignore. Because they're no longer women and cattle and slaves, but active players in their own stories and in ours. Because when we choose to write stories, it's not just an individual story we're telling. It's theirs, and yours, and ours. We all exist together. It all happens here. It's muddy and complex and often tragic and terrifying, but ignoring half of it, and pretending there's only one way a woman lives or has ever lived in relation to the men that surround her is not a single act of erasure, but a political erasure. Populating a world with men, with male heroes, male people, and their women and cattle and slaves. 
is a political act. You are making a conscious choice to erase half the world. As storytellers, there are more interesting choices we can make. Because I can tell you all day that llamas have scales. I can draw you pretty pictures. I can rewrite history. But I am a single storyteller, and my lies don't become narrative unless you agree with me, unless you write just like me, unless you, too, buy my lazy narrative and perpetuate it. You must be complicit in this erasure for it to happen. You, me, all of us. Don't let it happen. Don't be lazy. The llamas will thank you, and real human people will too. Cameron Hurley is an award-winning author, advertising copywriter, and online scribe. She's the author of God's War, Infidel, and Rapture, a science fiction fantasy noir series which earned her the Sidney J. Bounds Award for Best Newcomer and the Kitchi Award for Best Debut Novel. Her new novel, the epic fantasy Mirror Empire, is out in August. Her other fiction has been published in Lightspeed, Escape Pod, and Strange Horizons, and anthologies such as The Lowest Heaven and Year's Best Science Fiction. Her fiction has been translated into Romanian, Swedish, and Russian. She's also a graduate of Clarion West. Since the essay was published, both it and A Dribble of Ink have received Hugo nominations. Congratulations both Cameron and Aiden. Thank you very much for listening.
Ich hab's hier der Fresse an. 